You know, the last time that I was sharing with you on a first Wednesday, I was telling you that the Lord had really been dealing with me about striving to stay fully present in whatever I was doing. So if it was worship, I wanted to be fully present in worshiping him. If I was engaged in a conversation with somebody, I wanted to be fully present in in being with them and hearing what they were saying, if I was reading or whatever it was I was doing that I just wanted to be fully present. And, and it's interesting because um, as I've come around to this first Wednesday again, and in particular this Lenten season, I feel like God has been impressing that on my heart again. And it strikes me as interesting because it wasn't that long ago that he put it on my heart the first time. <laughs> and clearly I've fallen away from it, which I would think that being fully present should be one of those things I'm ex- exercising always in my, in my life. Um, but it's interesting how some things just have to come around again. Am I right? And they come around again. And then the Lord puts it in front of you once more again. And you're like, oh yes, I am still working on this one, Lord, aren't I? <laughs> So tonight, when I was thinking through what I wanted to share with you, I had one of those moments again. And let me, sorry, let me just pause for a moment and welcome those who are joining us um, at our campuses in Stevens Point and the Fox Valley. And of course, those who are joining us online or meeting, meeting in your homes with us for this first Wednesday night service. Um, I just love the extra time that we get to spend together on first Wednesdays in worship. And I love that reminder that the spirit is what unites us all. Um, So to our campuses, our friends who are joining with us via video right now, I just want you to know that, um, that we're so grateful, we're so honored, we're so humbled to be a part of the same body of Christ with you. And I'm so grateful for the spirit that unites us all, even when we're not sitting in the same room. So um, we're just so grateful for you to being with us. And we hope that your time of worship has been sweet as well. Um, as I was saying, when I was thinking about what I wanted to, to share with all of you tonight, it's interesting because you start thinking about Um, You know, Pastor Mark didn't have a specific thing that he was like, Becky, you should talk about this on First Wednesday. It's kind of like, hey, whatever the Lord has on your heart. So he spent some time reflecting like, okay, Lord, what have you been speaking to my heart? What have we been navigating through? And um, as I said, there seem to be these things in my life that he just continues to put in front of me. I hope somebody in the room can relate to that, (laughs) that it's not just me. Um, But you know, they often will happen. Yes, thank you, amen. Um, So it'll often happen. I don't know if you've experienced this where you'll walk away from like a sermon on Sunday and Pastor Mark will be done and you'll be thinking, did he have cameras in my house? I mean, like, what on earth? That message was like, right there, what I've been dealing with, you know? You know how you have those things? And it's, it's those times when I realize, you know, God clearly is trying to just get my attention on this because it's showing up in these different places. So it was interesting to me because this other thing that seems to be coming in front of me, it's not even like an issue. It's not a thing that way. It's a question that seems to keep getting brought up in front of me. Um, so when I was thinking about, again, what I was gonna share, I started um, thinking about this question which is simply this, what's the purpose? Now, God has been raising up that question in front of me in so many different arenas lately. And so when I was um, starting to dig into some thoughts for this evening, I thought, you know, maybe the Lord has something there. What's the purpose? So I started to dig through, I'm a note taker. um, So I started to dig through notes from 
old Bible studies that I've done and um, all kinds of different places. And wouldn't you know it, I found some notes from a study I had done maybe 10 years ago that dealt with this very issue of purpose. Um, And that makes me laugh as well because I think, well, it was maybe five months ago when the Lord was reminding me that I should be fully present. And now I'm looking at something that I wrote down 10 years ago, my friends, 10 years ago when I was doing a study. And yes, apparently the Lord is dealing with that one with me again too. Didn't quite learn that lesson 10 years ago. So he's like, Becky, apparently it's time. Let's have a little reminder. Let's have a conversation about what the purpose is. So, um, so as I share with you tonight, it's with a little bit of humor in my heart over the fact that we're gonna revisit something that God was working on me about 10 years ago and continues to bring in front of me on occasion. And I hope that somewhere that gives you encouragement to know as well, if, if there are things that you just cycle through, um, areas in your faith walk that you think, gosh, I thought I had that figured out. And suddenly you're back fighting that same temptation or the same struggle in your life that, that these are sometimes the cycles that we go through. And it just makes me so grateful that God doesn't just leave us in our places of while not quite figuring it out, that he's faithful to bring it back around and he helps us to continue to grow and navigate into these things. So as I said, the question that I've been posing is what's the purpose? And it's a valuable question. I think we would all agree with that. And it doesn't really even matter in what arena of life. Um, I was thinking about this. We have some good friends who are moving this week, okay? So going through that process, not just of packing all their stuff up, but you know how it goes when you move into a new house and you gotta figure out where all the things are supposed to go. Um, now I've had the, the privilege, and I do call it a privilege because I enjoy um, helping people with this, but of being in people's kitchens and unpacking their boxes and trying to figure out where things go. And when you're moving, this is one of those like great times to ask yourself the question, what's the purpose? So when you look at those things, those boxes that are standing there, now if the purpose is, and I've had people say this to me, if the purpose is, I just want it all to go someplace, I just want it put away behind doors somewhere. Okay, easy enough. You just start taking the things out, you find an open space, you put it in. Easy, that's the purpose. But other times the question that gets asked, of course, and what's the purpose is, well, if you think it through, if the purpose is to have your Tupperware as close as possible to where you might dish up your food, you know, dish up your leftovers, then it would make sense that it might go here because your countertop's there, or you want certain things close to where your dishwasher is, and you figure out what the purpose is, and it just helps you figure out, of course, how, um, how to best go about Um, the action that you're gonna do. So it's a meaningful question. We can ask it in the area of work, right? When you're navigating into new projects or tasks or things like that, you can ask yourself, so what's the purpose of this thing? And is it filling, is it accomplishing that goal, that thing that we're going after? It's a valuable question. This past Saturday, we did a training here for those who who volunteer at the church. And it was a question again, because I told you the Lord has had this one on my heart. So of course, when I was sharing on Saturday, we kind of came back to that whole question of what's the purpose? Why do we do these things? And it's such a valuable question to ask because when we get the answer to the question, it seems to make our decisions, um, it makes our decisions easier and it helps us to make sense of the things that we're doing. But not only that, it tends to put our heart in a right place and helps to create the motivation to keep doing the thing that we need to do. So as I said, um, God's been putting this question on my heart over these last several weeks of Lent and what's the purpose? And I started to examine the question from the standpoint of, you know, maybe if I really wanna figure out the purpose of things, I need to go back and examine um, what the purpose is of what Jesus did in his, um, 
in his ministry while he was here on earth. And then of course, as that concluded um, at the cross and his resurrection. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time tonight. I'm gonna bring you back in the scriptures actually to the night before Jesus's death. Um, is what we're gonna be looking at. Um, I want you to know that I'm gonna share some different events that happened in that night, and they're not necessarily gonna be all in chronological order for you, um, but I do wanna at least just set the stage. Um, You'll notice, I think this is a little funny, I've been laughing at myself about many things today. Um, I brought my very fancy spiral notebook paper Um, When I was planning tonight, I don't know if anybody likes that, but I'm a total pen and paper kind of girl. Um, So I was kind of grateful actually that these notes that I found were, I actually had put them digitally somewhere. That's how I found them. Um, But I'll have to think about what will ever happen with this because it's just paper, but we'll see. Anyway, that's the real Becky Schomer right there. You're gonna get my paper and pen version. Anyway, so as I was saying, I wanna bring us back to that night before Jesus actually died. It was the night, of course, as the Last Supper is what most of us would remember it as, as we're thinking through the biblical accounts. Um, The night before his death is one of those things that is talked about in all four of the gospels. It it does um, take place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We hear it from different, four different perspectives and four different accounts. So I'm gonna share some verses with you tonight that come out of each of those different books. Um, as well as we're kind of looking at that. But I do wanna start with one of the characters that's pretty prominent in the story, and that is Judas Iscariot. Now, I'm gonna guess that most of you are familiar enough with, um, with the story to know that Judas was the disciple who betrayed Jesus. But what's interesting is there's a lot of time and attention I've noticed that's paid to this question of, why did Judas do that? And if you wanna go on, online and Google it, you can find all kinds of interesting theories about why Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. Um, let me just, actually, I'm gonna pause there for a second because I did use a word that I always feel a need to kind of explain. Um, just in case you're, you're new, new to some of these Bible accounts, I want you to know that when we talk about this story, this account in the Bible, the use of the word story can make people think that this is something that's imagined or made up or, or make-believe. And I want you to know that the story of Jesus is a very, very real story. And the account that's shared with us in the Bible, there's lots of archaeology and things that, that speak to its truth. So please don't be misled by my use of the word story or character in the story. These are real people and real events that took place about 2,000 years ago. So anyway, so Judas, as I said, was the disciple we all know who had betrayed Jesus. And that question tends to arise of, what was the purpose in that for Judas? Like, why would he do that? What was he thinking? And some of the theories out there go like this. There are some people that believe that Judas was just eager for recognition. Now, Jesus, um, if you've followed the story of Jesus, he, of course, had these 12 disciples who were very, very close to him. But even among his 12, he had three who were even a little bit closer. They were, they were kind of brought into an even more personal circle with Jesus. Um, and Judas was not one of those three. So it's been suggested that um, Judas may have been struggling a little bit and wanting some kind of recognition. He didn't like the fact that he didn't get the esteemed place with these other disciples. And therefore, he thought that if he would align himself maybe with those religious leaders who were out to get Jesus, that that might just bring him some kind of recognition and if nothing else, a recognition among those um, those Jewish leaders of the time. One of the other theories that's out there is that he may have just been craving power. 
Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that when Jesus was going through his years of ministry and was growing in, um, in familiarity and recognition with people, there was kind of this misperception. They really did think that he may become an actual leader or king or ruler. They expected him to lead this rebellion against the Roman authorities. And when that didn't happen, one of the other suggestions is that maybe Judas was just craving power that wasn't fulfilled through Jesus. And he felt that by aligning himself with the religious leaders, he might be able to satisfy that craving. A couple of the other theories out there is one, just respect um, that he thought maybe by aligning himself with the, the still religious rulers of the day that it might give him a certain kind of status. Um, and then of course, the most obvious one is money. It was kind of expected, maybe he thought when he got involved in the ministry with Jesus that it would bring him wealth of some sort. But after three years of spending time with Jesus, he was still sleeping in the dirt and pretty much penniless, you know? And so maybe that just wasn't what Judas had bargained for. So he saw an opportunity to make a little money off of the deal and sold out Jesus on that side of things. It's interesting that there are so many theories about it because I wanna share with you what the scripture tells us. It's, in, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 16. And it says this, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Pastor Mark will often tell you that if the Bible was meant to be a story, it's a terrible story because it doesn't give you enough of the big picture. <laughs> but that's what we know about Judas. We don't know why he did it. All we know is that the deal was done. But isn't it fascinating that we spend so much time and, and so many people have spent so much time trying to figure out what was the purpose? What was his motivation in it? Can I just caution us for a moment? Sometimes life happens and we can get really caught up in this question of why. What were they thinking? Why would it have gone that way? What, how, how would that serve them? And sometimes we can get those answers and it might help us with, with reconciling some things, but very often we'll find ourselves in positions where we're just not gonna know the answer. History is sealed on this one. We're never, never gonna know the answer of why it was that Judas chose to betray Jesus. But the truth of the matter is we need to not be so concerned with the purpose that somebody else was acting from. The question that we should start to ask ourselves in these situations is, what purpose does this serve in my life? When you've been hurt by somebody, when there's a situation happening at work that just doesn't make sense to you, it's fascinating that our tendency is to get so involved and so engaged in trying to figure out why, why would this be? How could this be? What's the purpose in this? What were they thinking? And the truth of the matter is we would be much better served if we would ask the question instead, what purpose does this serve in my life? What am I supposed to get from this experience? So the night that, um, the night of the Last Supper that I'm gonna um, share a little bit more with you about um, happened during the Passover. 
Now, to give you a little bit of background on the Passover, um, the Passover was a celebration that, a remembrance actually among the Jewish people, it was a seven-day celebration, and it took place in Jerusalem. So at the time um, at the time that this happened, Jerusalem itself would have just been full of people bursting at the seams um, kind of situation. And the whole point of the Passover was for the people to remember what God had done when he had brought them out of Egypt um, at the time of Moses. And again, it's a story that's probably familiar to most, but it fits so importantly in with this whole idea of of what is happening in these last days of Jesus. So I just wanna remind you quickly of what had happened back in Egypt. So when Moses had gone to Pharaoh, to, um, and asked him or demanded him or however you wanna say it, to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh's heart was um, continued to be hard against this and he refused. And so God, of course, had started to send the plagues. We've all heard the story of Moses and the, and the plagues. And after the nine different plagues that had come, Pharaoh's heart was still hard and he refused to let the people go. So God had decided that he was gonna send a 10th and final plague and it was the plague of the death of the firstborn. So what was going to happen is God was going to send the angel of death into Egypt. And in every home that the angel met, he would put to death the firstborn son um, in those homes. Now God had prepared a way that the Israelite people, the Jewish people could avoid this judgment from the angel of death. And what they had to do is they had to go and find a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb, Um, And they had to take that lamb and they had to slaughter it. So they had to just put it to death. And after they had done that, after they had slaughtered their lamb, they would have to take his blood, so the blood of this perfect lamb, and they would place it over the doorpost of their homes. And then when the angel of death came through all of Egypt that night, um, he would pass over, this is where the word came from, he would pass over those homes that had already been marked by this blood. So the sacrifice that was given there um, shielded the family that was inside. It was through that sacrifice that the people, God's people were in essence saved. So the Jewish people, after that, God had told them that they needed to commemorate this. So at the time of um, the last week of Jesus's life, it was the week of Passover. It was the time of remembering when God had brought the people out of Egypt and when the death angel had passed over their homes because of the sacrifice that had been made by this perfect lamb and with the blood that had been poured out on their homes as a result of that. Um, So on the particular night of the Last Supper, the disciples, of course, were gathered with Jesus. It wasn't just Judas who was there. There are the other 11 that figure into our story as well. So they were all gathered together in this upper room. We've, we've seen this portrayed in paintings, right? Um, and as they're reclining around the table, um, because they were gathered for this meal, there was a very, um, very symbolic meal that happened as part of this week of Passover. And it was time for that meal. So they had gathered in this upper room and they were, they were sharing together the Passover meal. And as they were gathered there, the disciples began to argue. Um, and we're gonna read it out of the book of Luke. It says this, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. 
So there they are in the presence of Jesus. Now, again, to the disciples' credit, they had no idea that this was the night before his death. Um, Jesus, of course, knew, but the disciples did not. But there they are, and they begin to argue about which of them is the greatest. It would be interesting to know how it all started, wouldn't it? If they were all jockeying for place, like who gets to sit by Jesus? Because the truth of the matter it is, it has been recorded in the scriptures, not just once, but twice before this that the disciples have had similar arguments about who would get the best place, who was gonna be the closest, who was the greatest. And there we were once again with an argument breaking out among the disciples about who was gonna be the greatest. Now I'm gonna pause here in the story of the night before Jesus's death. And I wanna share with you something that, um, that I had found in my study notes It was a story about a government project that took place during the Great Depression. Um, It was a project that really started out with just great optimism and passion, but it ended with frustration and despair. Here's what happened. There was a group of unemployed men that the government decided to hire. So it it was a program, it was a project that was motivated to try to give some help, some assistance to to some American people who had really been struggling. So they hired these these men to build a road. Okay, so the men started out and they were very excited. They had the opportunity to do some work. They were going to earn a wage for it. The government gave them the tools that they needed in order to complete their project. And they set out to build this road into the wilderness. Now, eventually... The men who were building this road discovered something interesting. They discovered that the road that they were building didn't lead to anywhere. It was a road to nowhere. So they were given the job for the sake of working, but it didn't really have a purpose. So their productivity began to decline. Their morale went down and in time, they quit that job. And the gentleman who was telling this story made this statement about it. He said, roads to nowhere are hard to build. You know, when you're not living from a place of purpose in your life, it is very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to want to stop doing those things that that you thought had meaning or purpose before that. Now, if we're honest, we all have some idea of what it's like to build roads that lead to nowhere. Um, Because I'm sure, truthfully, we've all worked hard at things so we could pay our bills and get a roof over our heads and do repairs to our cars and all of those things. But at some point, we're left in that place of thinking, gosh, there's, there's gotta be something more. You know, maybe you spent some time at the gym thinking that your appearance might help give you your purpose. But the truth of the matter is, we're only getting older, my friends, even the youngest of you in the room. (laughs) And at some point, even that is a battle that we're not gonna win. But then there's also those, which is interesting, those who attain great levels of success by the worldly standards in their life, right? We've gotten new positions, more money, titles, recognition, At the end of the day, even those things don't seem to quite lead us into the places of purpose that we were hoping for. 
So the question is, how do we discover our purpose that leads us somewhere worth going? Okay, so this was the question that's also before the disciples, because as I said, when we left off with them in the upper room, they're arguing about position and status and placement. And Jesus is now less than 24 hours away from his death. And I got to tell you, if I were Jesus, oh, I'm so glad. We should all be glad. I'm sure we say that enough, that we're not Jesus, right? Because the disciples had not yet figured out really what their purpose of all of this was, this time that they had spent with Jesus. So we see that what was keeping them from living and acting with true purpose is actually the same thing that keeps all of us back as well, right? We discover that jockeying for a place is a road that leads to nowhere. And it ends up leaving us frustrated and disappointed. You know, the problem is we tend to think that this journey is all about us. We think that the idea, the point of all of this is to figure out our place and our position at the table. It's what the disciples were wrestling with 2000 years ago. And isn't it interesting that we haven't necessarily gotten much further? It doesn't make me feel so bad about 10 years later needing to discover the same, <laughs> same lesson that God has taught me once before. So anyway, here's Jesus and he's now in the upper room and he is keenly aware that his time with the disciples is coming to an end. And he doesn't choose to rebuke them. He doesn't choose to take them to task or preach a sermon to them. Instead, he does something so interesting. It's recorded in John 13. It tells us, that Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Our Jesus washed the feet of the men sitting in that room. Now at that time, most men probably walked around barefoot. At best, they would wear sandals. The roads that they were traveling were dust and dirt. And you have to remember, they didn't have sanitation at the time. So the streets were probably littered, not just with garbage, but also with, um, with human excrement, and not to mention things that animals would leave as well. So the washing of somebody's feet in this day and age was a disgusting task. It was a job actually that was usually left to the lowest servant in a house to perform for the house guests. So catch the irony of this moment. While the disciples are arguing over who gets the highest position, Jesus takes on the lowest and he begins to wash their feet and by doing so demonstrating a different way to live. John records the reaction of Peter. Now you got to remember, Peter was the disciple who he was like, I think always 50 feet ahead of himself. You know, he just couldn't, couldn't get enough. Um, so we find out that Peter says, when Jesus came to him and Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now I love this. This is so Peter right here. So then, um, then Lord Simon Peter replied, well, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
<laughs> Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Peter didn't need a bath, that wasn't the point, right? He did need, need his feet washed as did the rest of the disciples. So it wasn't just Peter whose feet got washed that day. All 12 of those very ordinary men sat around that table and watched Jesus go from person to person and wash their feet. All of them, including Judas, who Jesus knew was going to betray him in just a matter of hours. You know, Jesus knew that Judas was sold, had sold him out. He knew already what was in his heart. But Jesus goes ahead and he washes the feet of his betrayer. Now, after he does this, he gets up and he does address the disciples at this point. And this is what he tells them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. So now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Certain translations read that as, do as I have done. Foot washing is very foreign today, although I think most of us would be like, ew, I'm really not interested. <laughs> um, I've been in some, some retreat settings where they wanted people to wash feet and people are always like, I don't want anybody, I don't want to touch anybody's feet, I don't want anybody touching my feet. It gets us all weirded out. Um, but I want to make sure you don't miss the implications of this foot washing here, okay? Because it is this act that literally changed everything. You see, your purpose, the purpose for the disciples was not to be the greatest or the most powerful. And it was not this either, to have their needs met or their desires catered to. Now, it's easy to miss that one because Jesus took care of a need for them and what he was doing. They did need their feet washed. But if we look at it from the perspective of what we get, then we've missed the lesson of Jesus because the lesson that Jesus wanted them to understand is not so much that it's about getting your needs met, but it is about meeting the needs of others. It is to love others. It is to put others' needs ahead of ours. And in that sense, to be a foot washer. Uh, Jesus gave us the purpose for his life very early in his ministry. It actually, um, it's recorded in the book of Mark. And it's interesting because this is after one of those events where the disciples are arguing about who gets to sit at his right or his left. So again, we're in this place of understanding. This is, this is what happens when we don't quite understand um, purpose, uh, a Jesus kind of purpose. And he says this in Mark, he says, when the 10 heard about this, so about the people who were arguing about their place, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for money, for many, (laughs) for money. No, for many. He came to give and he came to serve. And at the conclusion of the foot washing, he told his disciples that that's what they should do as well, that they should live with that same heart. This is the road that we're called to build, to serve, to put the needs of others in front of our own. It goes against every other message of the world. The world tells us that our focus needs to be on us first. And it goes against our human nature as well. Because if we're being honest, if you're like me, I like to see the bank account going up. I like to see us accumulating a certain degree of, of wealth, I guess you can call it. Most of us like to build our resumes. We want to know that we're, we're accomplishing. We do not want to be feet washers. And there seems to be this immediate objection that comes out to us in our humanity at the suggestion that we should do such a thing. Because we think that if this life, that this life isn't about me, that, this, that what we really want is to be happy. And it's interesting because we think that, that happiness is about somebody serving us. It makes logical sense, right? If somebody would just take care of my needs, then I could be happy. And when that's our purpose, then being served feels like it should fuel that end. But there are countless studies today that tell us that's just not the case. For years, they've been examining this. I don't know if you know this, but for like the last 30 or 40 years, the occurrence of depression in young people has gone up by like, they, well, it's an interesting range, three to 10 times. That's a pretty big range, <laughs> but that's what the study said apparently when I was looking at it. So people born in the last 30, 40 years are, are three to 10 times more likely to struggle with depression than their grandparents were. And the reason that these social scientists keep finding for this is because there's more and more focus on ourselves. And the more we focus on ourselves, the more depressed our society seems to become as a whole. Now, it doesn't make sense, right? It seems to make sense that if I focus on my happiness and people will serve into my happiness, that should create, that should create happiness. I should be in the opposite. But instead, it's actually this upside down truth. So let me say, welcome to life with God. <laughs> There's a lot of things that God turns upside down for us. So we find out that at this Passover dinner, When Jesus is suggesting to them that they take that focus off of themselves and put it on somebody else, it is there that we truly discover purpose, our true purpose in living this life, especially as people of faith. There was one more event that took place earlier in the night at that Passover dinner. Um, We talk about it often, so I know that you're not strangers to it, but that dinner itself was very symbolic and very rich. And at one point in the evening, When they were gathered together in that upper room, Jesus paints the picture of what would be his greatest act of service. It's recorded in the book of Luke. It says this, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hmm. What was he saying? Body broken, blood poured out. Was Jesus equating himself to the Passover lamb? We know that the disciples really didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going on, although they would in very soon order. But in the actions of that evening, we discover that Jesus sets this ultimate example of serving even to the point of giving his life on the cross for all of us. You know, I look at that night and I think, gosh, Jesus had to have felt the weight of those moments. He knew what was coming. Things in his own life were pretty full, but he served anyway. Sometimes I look at my life and I think, ah, I've just got so much. There's so many things going on. I don't know that there's room or space for me to serve as well. But Jesus tells us there's a different way. Jesus serves even though he's hours away from unfathomable torture and eventually death. He served in a way that cost him everything. But he tells us and he shows us that by doing the same, we'll actually discover a life of purpose, one that builds roads that lead to somewhere. So my question as we close tonight, and I'm gonna invite our musicians to come back if they can hear me. I don't really, <laughs> I'm, I'm trusting they will. But my question for you tonight is, what road do you find yourself on? We'd like to think that the world, we'd like to think like the world and that we're on a road to happiness, that recognition would feel rewarding. But these selfish, these selfish pursuits are roads that tend to lead nowhere and they are hard roads to build. We discover from the scripture that Jesus came to give and he came to serve. It doesn't seem exciting or glamorous or fulfilling, but it is what we were made for. We sang that song earlier tonight that Christ is the solid rock upon which we stand. This world is gonna give us so many messages about how we should live and how we should act and what we should do. But if we wanna live a life building roads that lead somewhere, then we need to live a life that is firmly grounded on Jesus, on who he is and what he has designed us for. He calls us to be people who will give and who will serve. And only in doing so will we truly embrace what it means to live a life with purpose. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we can't begin to imagine what you experienced in those last hours of your life here on earth. God, we know that you are faced with betrayal, with physical pain that we can't begin to imagine, with frustration, and with a close group of friends who just didn't get it. 
but you served anyway. You gave anyway. You set the example for each of us and told us to do likewise. So God, even though it doesn't always make sense, even though it doesn't line up with what the world would tell us, God, I pray that we would be people who choose to be genuine followers of you. I pray, Lord, that you would grow inside of each one of us a heart to give and a heart to serve. Lord, I pray that we would embrace this upside down world that you call us to that we would turn our minds from the ways of the world, that we would, that we would resist the temptations to live in a way that, that the rest of the world is trying to tell us to, to navigate, but God, that we would truly walk in a road that leads somewhere, the road that you call us to build that leads to your divine purpose and being part of your kingdom and bringing others along on that journey. We just love you so much, Lord. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray that you would seal these things in our hearts and in our minds so that we can carry them and become more and more like you. In your name I pray, amen.